Hey everyone, this is Kevin. This is Callan. And this is Katie. Uh, thanks so much for listening today, you guys. This is episode two of Hot Rods of the Sky. First off, we want to thank all of you so much for subscribing and being so supportive of our little show we've got going on. For just an intro episode where we didn't really talk about much, um, we really had no idea it was going to take off uh, like it did. And I specifically said take off, um, so appreciate me for that wordplay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, She's here all night, folks. Forward, Try the video. <laughs> tip your waitress uh so moving forward all our goal is to get you guys at least one new episode a week um this week is going to cover the history and background of the gb model z uh so kind of go in we'll travel back to the 20s and 30s we'll talk about the granville brothers and why the z was so awesome to begin with um So if you haven't already, please hit that little subscribe button so you can keep up with us. And if you love the show, please take the time to leave us a five-star review. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop rambling, uh, but let's get started. So this week we are talking about the history of the Granville Brothers. Next week we'll be discussing the replica that was built in the 90s. So um, yeah, I'm seriously going to stop rambling now. Uh, But... (laughs) Uh, Dad, why do you think the GBZ is still so, I guess, prevalent and, like, in today's society? Why do people still care about a plane that originally, you know, crashed almost 90 years ago? Well, I think, you know, it was a a piece of aviation, you know, it's basically a milestone airplane that all of a sudden, you know, they're going so much faster than, than they had ever gone before. The airplane had radical looks. Um, it was a, definitely an airplane that form follows function. So you would put the biggest engine on the tiniest airframe you could possibly get away with and then try to sit there and, and go out and, and uh, win some money at the races. Um, I think it's the, the look of it, um, you know, the shock that it, it brought to the world is really what um, what attracts a lot of people to the airplane. And then there's... You know, it's a hell of a story about the people who built it and then, you know, where where they came from, what they did in a short period of time with virtually no money, you know, uh, to, to any degree. And then those guys all went on to to, you know, to be you know, huge contributors to the aviation future through War II and after. That was a pretty good consensus. Callan, do you have anything to add on that? Well, you get, like in the, in the 20s, so... The Z flew in 31. So in 1929, like the year the Lockheed that we're working on now was built, the Lockheed goes 189 miles an hour, top speed. So that was a fast airplane. This thing, the Z went to almost 300, 270, 280. So at the time, it was, you got to consider an automobile was going 20, 30 miles an hour typically. You know, you weren't, not top speed, but I mean, you're talking about, you know, T models and A model Fords and things like that. It's not there. There, there weren't the, the common people didn't didn't know anything about speed at those kind of levels. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Well, since you're talking about kind of America at the time, we'll just kind of jump in with a little background. Um, And I think if we talk about what's happening in America during those times, it helps us appreciate just how much they did with such little time, resources, money, (laughs) you know. So, um, you know, 1927, as I'm sure we all know, um, Lindbergh flew around the world and started the, quote, golden age of aviation. No, Um, uh, he didn't fly around the world. No? In 27? Spirit of St. Louis? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's crossing the Atlantic to get... He landed in Le Bourget, France. Well, I have a documentarian that you need to send an email because it said that he flew around the world, which I but thought sounded hokey. But I was like, it's in a documentary, later, so I'm not going to fight it. He did, later, yeah. he did in a Lockheed Sirius, but you know, that's a different thing. But, yeah. Well, we're emailing. Basically, right what you're saying is, you know, at the time, you know, aviation is in in this huge rapid growth period where... You know, major milestones are happening. There was a, a prize to to fly across the Atlantic, the first to be across, and then you know all these all these cross country events and races and all just kind of led to that era where there were there was there was such a thirst for performance and to see these airplanes reach new records and goals. It was it's, a it, rocket it, making, well, making the world smaller. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and. I mean, at that time as well, at that time as well, you have, um, you know, the government wasn't super interested in funding any type of, you know, innovation or promoting aviation really all that much. They're really focused on the economy, uh, which I know that, you know, we can all see is headed for a real steep downturn but, but, <laughs> in 1927, 25. Yeah. But the thing is, is that the government didn't really understand these flying machines these these things you know what what do they you know what were they for what could they be used for they didn't really see a a huge need for this it was it was almost like um i don't know cal what do you think it's kind of like witchcraft well or or you know carnival kind of thing it was it was it was entertainment more so fad they did yeah they didn't really see it as as the future yeah exactly that we would use aviation at the level that we are today yeah so it's just a a real different time it's probably some of the same kind of skeptic skepticism like the beginning of the rocket age when they were starting to do some of that stuff you know like this thing you know this is never gonna work you know it's a fad yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and well, and a lot of the aircraft companies, like the bigger manufacturers that were producing um, larger airplanes, I'm sure, Dad, you could list a few of those at the time, um, they had some regulations, so they weren't able to really, you know, like the small shops like Granville Brothers and, and others that would just say, I wonder what this would be. Let's figure this out. All right, slap it on there. Let's do a test flight with it. See what happens, you know? Yeah, I mean, so, you, you have that today in anything, aviation or automobiles or whatever. You got the guys that are, that are you know, pushing the limits and finding out what you can do. And then you have a company that needs to focus on making money and making the business run, and you don't have time to go and do all the little stuff. So, you know, even today you see where that that's a little bit different between the two. 
you might have an R&D department, but maybe you can't do as many things as a guy that's just in his garage. So, all right. Anyway, so let's chat about the Granville brothers, which is the whole reason that we're here. Um, and just in case you didn't know, they were actually in business from 1929 until they went bankrupt in 1934. Uh, so, you know, I never knew that they were only active for such a small amount of time. And most of the years that they were open was the Great Depression. So the Model P flew, I believe, in May of 29, and the Great Depression started in November. So, you know, things were kind of stacked against them in in terms of selling more planes or whatever. Um, So our story starts in 1925 in Boston. Um, Zanford Granville... He only had an 8th grade education, actually, and he described himself and others described him as just a genius self-taught engineer, which still, you know, baffles me that it's at all. Yeah, he was he was one of those kind of guys that, that just could fix anything, you know. He would, he, you know, somebody would say, hey, can you fix my truck or my automobile or whatever, and it just, a tractor or sled, you know, whatever it was, he was able to, to figure it out and fix it and come <laughs> up with solutions. And I think um, it's just, I think it's also a sign of the times as well, is that a lot of people were just that, you know, like resourceful and figure it out type of thing. Yeah. Like now, you know, somebody with an eighth grade education, I think one of our little cousins is in eighth grade. Yeah. So, so, um, Yeah, he actually got his pilot's license in 1925 at the East Boston Airport, I believe. Uh, He caught, as I'm sure uh, a lot of you can relate to, he caught the aviation bug and it just kind of snapped him in and never really grew grew out of it. Um, And he was spending a lot of time at the East Boston Airport uh, repairing airplanes and helping out over there, and he actually wanted to do that full-time. So he brought his brother Tom into Boston and had him take care of the garage so that he and his brother Ed could start working full-time at the airport in 27. Yeah, I I believe his main business was a Chevrolet garage, if I remember correctly. I think it was a Chevy garage. The the, the, um, the mechanic the auto shop. garage. Yeah. yeah. Huh, that's interesting. You know, we're a Ford family, so that's yeah. difficult for us. <laughs> I drive a Nissan. Um, all right. <laughs> Just take the joke, Kevin. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, we're more of a Nissan family. There's three of them. Right. So, yeah, I think we beat out Ford. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, when they actually set up their first shop, they had they didn't have the permission to set up a permanent structure, so they had to build their shop into a little truck. Yeah. So, it's kind of like a Mo- food truck for airplane mechanics. Yeah, mobile repair, and that's yeah. not mm-hmm. uncommon even today. Yeah, somewhere I've seen a picture of the truck, and it's like a, um, a milk truck. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Funny you should mention that. I have a picture of the truck, and we are actually going to post it on the blog that we're writing about that kind of coincides with this podcast. So if you want to look at the truck, you can either go to our Facebook or Instagram pages, or you can go uh, visit 
uh, the link that we'll have in the show notes to go look at all the cool pictures, because we worked really hard finding all these pictures. Mainly my dad found a lot of them in the 90s, and everybody deserves to see them, yeah. or should see them. Yeah, so it was. So, it, he was he was uh, working on the airplanes, and he was fixing a lot of things that that were breaking off at, often on the airplanes. You know, guys would ground loop them uh, and you know, twist off the landing gear, or um, you know, drag a wingtip. And there were so many things that were happening to the airframes, and they kept repairing the same parts. And so his thought was, I can make some of this stuff better if that connection was made to where just the piece the the landing gear failed and broke but it didn't mess up the fuselage frame it's less work to repair so he could see these improvements that he wanted to do to these airframes that of all different brands and um you know as you as you see all that and you you start to see the the good elements from this airplane design and the good ones from that one then you start having ideas about well i could you know maybe i could do that and that's kind of the direction they went well, and that's exactly why they, you know, started their own, uh, I believe it was initially called GB Airplanes. Yeah. I was looking at some old, some old logos and little drawings that they did for it. And it was GB, which if you don't know, is basically the initials of Granville Brothers. So you yeah. got GB. Um, and then it morphed into I, Granville Brothers Aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, Zanford, then after they decided to start their own airplane business, they, he actually brought the rest of his brothers into it, which is like a basketball team worth of brothers. Yeah. So you had Zanford who was kind of running the show and coming up with the cool ideas. Then you had Ed, Tom, Mark, and Rob. So you've right. got your starting lineup for whatever basketball team you want. Right. And he also brought on Bob Hall into the company to really help drive engineering. Bob Hall, um, from what I've read, Dad seems like a really young, hotshot engineer that was looking to really explode on the scene yeah, in a way. He had other experience, you know, um, before coming there, and that's really why um, you know they needed they wanted to go into production and build airplanes, and they needed to have a true engineer on staff to be able to do all that stuff. What type of engineer was he? Uh, some some say he was a civil engineer, and I, and some say it was, you know, aero. But I, I've always been thought thought that he was a, a more of a civil guy. You know, he could do bridges, and so yeah. he could do trusses. Hmm. Yeah, uh, trusses, trusses. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not even like mechanical. Or yeah, like... I don't know. I mean, that's interesting. There's a, somebody's going to correct us on it, I'm sure, but. But it was, sure. mm-hmm. you know, some of the, the stories are basically he was, his knowledge is what they needed. And, you know, that's that's where he came from. His personal passion was not aviation at all. It was, uh. it was sailing. So, you know, which is interesting. You know, airplanes were work. It wasn't, it wasn't fun. It wasn't his, it wasn't, it was his vocation, not his avocation. His family still has well, a business I- of doing yeah. sailboats. Mass. Shoveled spars. Really? Yeah, hall spars. Wow. And that's something that, like, that aspect is actually really rare. Sorry, really rare in terms of, like, I'm sure you guys have met some people like this, but for me, almost everybody that I've met in the aviation community, that is their life. You know, I, I work, 
I work it. Yes, it's my job, but it's also my passion. And I collect all of these and I redo all of that. And I fly everything and I watch aviation documentaries and this is my life and I love it. And my wife is really annoyed by it. You know, like that's like the whole shtick of it. So that's interesting. Yeah, to hear but that it, it, he got into something like that. And, yeah. And, 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 you know, you think about the area there in the northeast and sailing and that kind of a deal. It's pretty good. Yeah. But, you know, it's not just him. You go, you come a, a generation later and Curtis Pitts was all about boats and fishing too, you know. So airplanes were a business, but he'd rather be fishing. <laughs> Most airline pilots. It's a job. Yeah. Put that yeah. on a t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Airplanes are business. I'd rather be fishing. So, yeah. Um, so they they got the business going and and it's got all the brothers there and they're going to start producing an airplane. Yeah, so they started working on um, a biplane, a new biplane, engineering and fabrication of it. And on March 3rd of 1929, their first new biplane was rolled out of the hangar at 5.30 in the morning. Now, they assembled it the night before because uh, they didn't... Ed had said they didn't want anybody to take any sneak peeks. They didn't want it sitting all together in the hangar. So they assembled it all through the night the night before and they rolled it out at five o'clock in the morning and it took its first flight and the first gb model p kind of blew off yeah and a and lot it, of people were really impressed by it yeah, yeah and it was cool. it, it was an airplane of course we can touch on the on the name of it the model p and the p was for prototype and then ah. and then the next prototype that they did was a model q and then you know that kind of a thing so now the what was Q for? P was P was prototype for the the prototype biplane, and then mm-hmm. when we back up on some of the airplanes that we're going to talk about a little bit before in a little while when they start doing the racing, you know, going after the prize money, they started with X, Y, and Z, and so then you get to Z and there's no more letters, so you can't go you know Z Z or Z you know whatever you know what I mean. You can't start back at A. But um, so what they did is A-A-A. they went to P for the Bible. You know, you got this is on a different sequence. OK, because this is actually before the X airplane or the, and everything. So um, they use P. I'm, I'm rambling, but they have airplanes that are P, Q, R. And then they have airplanes that were X, Y, Z. And then production, mm-hmm. production airplanes that they built to sell in mass were A, B, C, D, E, F. And A is the proto- is the production version of the biplane. P was just the prototype biplane. And then the A was a production, the certified production version, which they built a, you know, several of those. And uh, one still exists today. Where? New England Air Museum. Ah, that makes a lot it, of sense. It's, it was on display years ago when Jeff and I went up there, but it's now, I think, in storage. Um, oh, that's sad. The airplane had a lot of innovations on it. A lot of the stuff that we talked about that Granny was seeing. Uh, U-joints where the landing gear attaches. So when the gear got twisted, it didn't break the fitting. It could swivel like a like a U-joint in a ratchet. Um, it had a really cool... Uh, going back in that time and pe- people learning how to fly, 
they would freeze up and lock up and and freeze on the controls and then the whoever's trying to mm. teach them if you're in a jenny or something like that they're locked up on the controls and you crash because like, so know. they could release them right. take it off by so a this flick a, of the stick yeah, yeah they had a twist release on the stick and it would it would um make the student controls go limp and so the instructor could take over it was a two-place side-by-side open cockpit biplane dual headrest and windshields and everything so instead of being one behind the other you were side by side which made it a little bit nicer for instruction you know you could smack the guy or whatever yeah um elbow well, in the face. luckily callan never yeah <laughs> luckily callan never smacked me in the bonanza there yeah. were a couple of very stress very stressful on my end flight instructions <laughs> if you are wanting to learn how to fly and you have never done anything close to it besides the flight simulator when you were 10 years old don't start out in a bonanza it's just it's or with your brother actually you you may be no i think i think the amount i was yelling only callan would have been able to handle that well, you're and also the amount of anxiety i had so. yeah we were in a, a storm was coming okay so like don't put me on blast like that but yeah i was and i had a really bad anxiety problem during the time so well, thank you Cal. think about like in the 20s you you've never seen you may have seen an airplane you know You've heard about this new thing, and then Flying you're gonna machines. go. Yeah, you're gonna go fly. Yeah, yeah. And then you take off, and you've never been off the ground except for being on a building or on a ladder. You've Jump never out of a tree. You've yeah. never experienced that, and it makes sense why you would freeze. You know, it's a whole new, you know, thing. You're not supposed to come off the ground. If we were to fly, we'd have wings. You know, so it's. It makes sense why that you twist the grip and. Things go. I mean, sometimes it'd be bet it'd be good that airplanes now still had that option. You know, right. they could yeah, they, had, they had a lot of. It's cool. There was a lot of innovations that were, you know, safety related and everything. Yeah. There. There's a lot of things that happen in aviation and automobiles and everything else that, it's there's uh, not so many as many new things as our rebirth of things, you know, with a new, yeah, new way of doing it and. You know, the technologies tend to roll back around. Well, and I think, um, like just you saying rebirth made me think of, you know, no story, no book, no TV show, no movie is ever original anymore. It's just not. Yeah. It's based off of something else or just a spring off of something right. else, you know. Like, you might have different characters and one of them might fall off a cliff, but it's still at its core you know, whether it's good versus evil, guy meets girl, there's really only like, yeah, there's less than 10 real stories <laughs> that everybody yeah. tells. So, yeah, but you know, here it's just a, it's a pretty unique story in this one, but of these guys building something from nothing when that was really, really hard to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you really didn't have a lot of choices. You had to. And you're on the cutting edge, basically, of yeah. airplane manufacturing and design. Well, and then you know well, they did the biplane, and that really, you know, started making some money for them. And this was before things, you know, the the economy tanked with the Great Depression and everything. So, you know, it's kind of working, and, and it's, you know, they're they're okay. We can build some more. And we're going to build them and sell them. And you know, they went to the World's Fair with one and had it on display at the World's Fair. And yeah, uh, they were using it to kind of push the brand and be and, able to sell the yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah. And I've got the set yeah. of uh, they had a, on the, at the World's Fair they had a an airplane on display and then they had a sample board that had a bunch of the wing fittings and stuff on, and I have all those fittings. 
those were send me a picture of them okay yeah they were um <laughs> uh tearing down a house it was like a friend of a friend this is 20 something years ago they were tearing down a house and whoever had them had them in the attic and they found these things that looked like airplane parts and whoever was doing the the stripping the house down contacted my friend and said yeah, these anything here you know here you go and then we looked up the part numbers and actually found the the um the photograph of it all on a board at the world's fair <laughs> so that's kind of cool i have some that genuine really gb cool. model a biplane parts are sitting in my office right here genuine yeah. that's nice yeah. um so <laughs> i'm trying not to say um anymore so i really need it i just right. don't i'm just like i'm getting nervous and okay <laughs> Well, kind of just bouncing off of that, they were, you know, really advertising the Model P. They were really trying to push sales. And um, as we just said, the first flight was in May of 29. And then November of 29 started the Great Depression. So people weren't really lining up to buy airplanes anymore. They were lining up to get bread and food so that they could live. And then really, I mean, it, it wasn't just like airplanes weren't really ever like a middle class thing you know but then it just became you know only people like you know the Rockefellers and all of that could really afford a private yeah (laughs) could really afford a private plane and that really really hurt them and they were trying to find you know they were just trying to find a home where they could keep a full hangar and just they wanted to work yeah they wanted to work they Mm -hmm. wanted to eat they wanted to to live and and what they they wanted to be able to do that with their passion, which was the now they realized was aviation. So, um, yeah. So they went I wonder out. Wonder what that's like. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so then you know they went out to look, look for backers and to find customers that were uh, affluent and could you know pay for the airplanes, could sponsor projects, things like that. And that's really um, you know when they started getting involved with the the Tate brothers that were uh you know had ice cream factory and and uh, which I love ice cream factory <laughs> yeah. what a fun time and their daughter was really into aviation yeah Maud Maud Tate, Tate. yep she, was, she, she raced quite a she bit she was she broke a lot of female records and then she actually I looked into her a little bit she actually uh be in like a time speed record she lost to amelia Earhart. well not lost to but didn't break the record yeah. and it was by like one hundredth of a second right and she was talking about it on a tv show and she you could tell she was still just like ah oh, just like you know? that close you <laughs> know better yeah. yeah she's she's yeah. like i was very close to it by the way yeah. you know <laughs> so yeah they you know they had the different even at the national air races you had the ladies derbies and the different classes and so you, it was, um, it was pretty cool. You know, that, that there were a lot of aviatrix in the day, um, yeah. not just, you know, Amelia's, you know, very the famous biggest. in it, but, yeah. but, you know, Maude Tate, you have, um, gosh, you know, Louise Thaden, you know, all these, all these other names of these, um, famous ladies who pushed the envelope just as hard as the guys were doing. And, yeah. um, they weren't, they weren't them, afraid of it. They were going. A lot of them didn't. Yeah. A lot more stuff than Amelia. It just she had a publicist for her husband, so she her name got out there more than anybody else. Right, right. For a lot of it, so. Ah. Yeah. So the world hasn't changed too much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but um, but by like, whoever shouts the loudest. 
Yeah. These guys, though, I mean, they got hit hard by the... That's mm-hmm. all of aviation. I mean, a lot of aviation yeah. companies went out of business because you know, they just couldn't maintain. I mean, there's there's companies that still exist today. Um, for example, there's a, a metal building company that exists today that um, in the 20s were building biplanes. They were an airplane company. And then they actually just you know, didn't survive the airplane part of it, but their metal building company is still a name today in the U.S. So, hmm. you know, there's... You you do what you have to do to survive, and that's what these guys were doing. Yeah. And and um, they they started hearing about this you know these racing derbies where there are big prize money, relatively large prize money, like the the Cirrus Reliability Tour, the Cirrus Air Derby, and it was and what was the prize money? I couldn't like really like seventy five hundred bucks, you know? Yeah. So yeah. you know this big is in seventeen seventeen cents an hour, you know, or like Ford, yeah. Ford at this time was paying workers in the factory $7 a day. That was your pay. So it was $42 a week. You worked six days a week, and that was your pay. So $7,500 bucks is, you know, is big, 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 big money. Mm-hmm. So you know, they designed and built the, um, the little Model X, which is a single-seater open cockpit low-wing sport plane that had the 90-horse Cirrus engine on it. And for the American Derby, right? Yeah, the Cirrus. It, it was really, a, it was really a reliability tour, and yeah. you know, they had Ford tri motors going around, all kinds of different airplanes. But it was basically a national tour of a bunch of different airplanes: Great Lakes, uh, this airplane, you know, a bunch of different models that Haxley manufacturers use that Cirrus engine on there. And Cirrus is trying to promote the reliability, yeah. and so this was kind of getting around the country to do that. And I think. Well, officially it, came in second or something like that, right? I believe. Yeah, they came in second behind uh, Lee Gelbach. Yeah, yeah, yeah Gelbach. And he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he later flew the, you know, the GBs too. Well, and and he and the um, Gelbach and yeah. the pilot of the Model X, who I believe was Lowell Bales. Yeah. I didn't write his name yeah. down. Yeah, but Lowell Bales. Yeah. yeah, they were actually good friends mm-hmm. and. When they would land each day, they were really neck and neck. Everybody else was pretty far behind, but they were kind of neck and neck. He'd be first one day, or, you know, Lee would be first the next day. And um, I believe it was Rob Granville that was doing an interview back in the 70s or 80s, and he said that Lowell Bales did an amazing job marketing the GB around the country. Cause, and we'll post a photo of the map as well that shows the track that they run around. It's right. basically you know, almost all the way around the country just to prove the reliability of the Cirrus engines. Yeah. But toured the USA. Yeah. Yeah. And every time Lowell Bales would come to land the the Model X, he would do a little aerobatic show before he landed. So everybody was like, Oh, that's so yeah. great. Yeah, and it was the, just really good branding for G B. Yeah, the town folk would come out to see it, you know, because they, they saw yeah. this craziness going on. We have to go see what that's about. And yeah. you know, that it's it's really good to that they were getting that brand recognition, but all those people were not ever going to be able to buy. No, yeah. they were not. The, they were not the target demographic. <laughs> no. But it was still cool, you yeah. know. And yeah. I and it, and it's kind of into- kind of like the barnstorming days. You know, that's what you did. You went yeah. over town and you did some maneuvers and you know flicking around, and then you came in and landed at whatever farm field, and then everybody came out and you did your business. But yeah, it was it was more of a it was a promotional tour, is what it was, mm-hmm. and. Um, but it worked out good. They got some. They got some prize money. 
um, that was able to kind of keep the business going. And then they were, the national air races were going on in Cleveland every year. There were basically two major races in the United States, the Bendix cross country race. And then the, the, um, national air races in Cleveland. So, yeah, let's, let's jump to the national air races in Cleveland. So they definitely, after that first Cirrus, they were, um, okay. Um, hold on one second. I can hear myself echoing, and I think it's from your headphones, Dad. Really? Let me. Yeah, I'm gonna turn myself down. Can everybody still hear me? Yeah. Yep. I think that's how Callan was echoing in your in your track the other day. Okay. I'll turn me down a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I turned I turned me down. Everybody's still good. Can you yeah. hear me? Yeah. Yep. Great. Okay, so let's. I'm gonna start my. Yeah, let's jump to that Cleveland Air Race National Air Races. Yeah. Um, because they. They weren't totally sure if they were going to enter in it, but after getting that prize money from Cirrus and then Granny, who, by the way, when we reference Granny, we're talking about Zanford Granville, the, um, in my mind, the lead brother. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, Granny was kind of toying with the idea, and he kind of ended up. It was decided with everybody that they were going to do it just a few short months before. before yeah, and the it, race. you know, in between the X. And deciding they're going to go to the National Air Races, you know, and say in 1930 at the National Air Races, you had, you know, the Laird uh, Solution winning. Um, it was a, a biplane and, uh, you know, the, it was the fastest airplane. Um, and then you the see a lot of stuff going on. These, cockpit. Yeah. And you're seeing these guys, they're seeing people that they know in the industry going there and making money. And they had designed the Model Y, again, going to their, their customer base of, you know, uh, wealthy people who could afford sport planes. The X became this series of sportsters that were the, the A model, B model, up through E and F model. And those particular, basically it's all the same airframe with a, um, like a D model had a Manasco engine on it. An F had a Chevrolet engine on it. The E model had a Warner radial engine on it, but it's a single seat, open cockpit biplane, a little bit bigger than what the X was. And they were real popular. And um, and so then they had the request for the two-seater and that became the Model Y. And they built two Model Ys, a YC and a YW. YC had a Lycoming engine on it, which is YC because the Cord Automobile Company owned Lycoming at the time. And so it was a Cord so YC and YW was for the the uh, Wash Junior that was on it, the Pratt Whitney. So they made two of the Model Ys. So now we've done the X, the Y. The next available letter in the alphabet is the Z, and that's how the Model Z got its model designation. Was just the next in line, hmm. and they they designed it and built it um, for the sole purpose of going to the nineteen. 31 national air races in September and getting some prize money. And uh, like you said, I mean, it was, you know, like two months before the races that they're like, Oh, we got to do this. And, <laughs> and, uh, they basically went 24 seven, pretty much working on it. Um, around 15 people, I think were working on the airplane employees and, and, uh, you know, their work, Bob Hall was designing parts for the airplane. People were building them. 
he would hand off the drawings and then he would leave and go out to all the businesses around Springfield and pitch the idea to try to get some funding. Um, and they, they formed the Sarah, the Springfield Air Race Association. And that, you know, you see on the later GBs, you know, the red and white ones, you see Sarah on the cowling. It's not the girlfriend or anything. It's Springfield Air Race Association. On the Z, it had it painted fully spelled out on the top of the fuselage between the cockpit and the engine. It was spelled out on both sides. So they raised about five grand and money and they basically had investors that they promised dividends to if they win. You know, that's the that's the whole deal, you know. And um, they had one of the prime investors was Lowell Bales. He put in, I think, 500 bucks. And that was a big chunk. Again, you know, we're talking about that $7 a day kind of a thing. Yeah. It's 500 bucks. So Well, and a, a big... A big portion of uh, the rest of it, a lot of it was um, lent to them. You know, the yeah, the, the, the Pat engine. Whitney yep. was lent to the, yeah, the engine. And then I saw a, um interview with Ed, I believe it was. And Ed actually, he he said, you know, some, some of the pedals were lent. This was lent. That was lent. You know, most of it. And that was how we were able to pu- end up pulling it all together with, only raising five thousand. Yeah, I know, mean they, so. they they didn't the, the the instruments were things they had laying around or got donated. Uh, Barry Brothers, you know, Barreloid Dope gave them the the dope. Um, I think uh, they they used a company that almost all the airplanes back then used for all their metal fairings and everything. Hill Streamliners and Hill Streamliners, you know, helped them out in some way. I, I probably didn't charge them full boat on on making the cowling and the wheel pants and all that stuff. And that's part of the reason they were able to do it is that they, you know, some of the stuff did get farmed out. And, um, you know, the engine itself was serial number two Pratt & Whitney. Uh, It was a 985. Uh, Standard horsepower in the 985 at that time was 300 horsepower. And this one was, um, yeah, pumped up, let's say, to to produce around 535. That's what they claim, yeah. Mm -hmm. And really... It wasn't physically a lot different. Uh, it wasn't like they upped the compression and the blower was twice the size or any of that kind of stuff. They just really spun it up, spun up the RPM. So instead of turning, you know, two grand or whatever the, the red line was at the time, 2050 or something, they were turning 25, 2700 RPM. And then they were just, they were just pouring the fuel to it. They had, you know, almost like not having jets in the carburetor. It was just, you know, all the gas, amounts of fuel, all the gas it could, could get yeah. through there. And um, and that's why, you know, the, you really see a color change on these on these airplanes when they're at Cleveland racing behind the cowling. It's just all black soot because there's a lot of unburnt fuel going yeah. through there. But they were using the gas to help keep the cylinders cool because they took out the engine baffling between the cylinders because that kind of made more drag. And, you know, it was, made the cooling better for the cylinders, but... It could slow you down, so they took all that stuff out, and you know, the the uh, what our engine? Who cares? You know, we'll yeah, you know, we'll go ahead <laughs> and got do a, what we need to do. You got a Pratt guy sitting right there with a bucket load of cylinders and pistons and yeah, yeah, tools to and work well, on. And and didn't um, Lowell Bales? He tried to. It was during the national air races. He tried to break the speed record again and ended up blowing out like a couple of pistons. And yeah, yeah. Other stuff. So they had to fix it all back up. Yeah. So, so they had a little bit of engine trouble. It's kind of a week long or what? Several days event there, and it's not just about pylon races. And the 
know, there's several different cla- different races um, as far as going around the pylons, and and then they also had the speed dash, and the and the speed dash is when you you know you enter your aircraft and you got to make certain number of passes um, in a closed course, and they measure how fast you go, and um, ultimately, you know, once he was successful in the speed dash, it actually was. 267 and change miles an hour. So that was pretty, I mean, again, you know, we're talking about you're going a hundred miles an hour faster than a Lockheed Vega, um, you know, which is one of the fastest airplanes of that era. And the engine, because they're pushing it so hard, running high RPM, pouring a lot of gas through it, it's washing all the oil off the cylinders and you know, and the, the, it's just burning up cylinders and burning up pistons. And so they had Pratt Whitney guys there um, to work on the engines for everybody, not just the Granvilles, but the, you know, Pratt was there. They were using this as R&D, you know. Yeah. Got the, they're loaning all these engines <laughs> to these guys and let them beat the hell out of them and, and then learn what, what would fail. Yeah. But um, my understanding, if I recall, is they had to put a few cylinders on. They did all that before the... You know, the main event, you know, the the main race. And they were actually, one of the brothers is in the airplane. They put a bunch of gas in it. He's running it, breaking in the cylinders, you know, warming the engine up, basically getting it yeah. broken in. Can't, got to keep it up, keep yeah. it running. Like, yeah. Do then, not, yeah. <laughs> then he got out, Bales got in, went out and ran the race. And, you know, kept picking up speed on, on each lap. And um, so it was breaking in even more, making more power as they, yeah. as they ran. Somewhere there's a, I said, is there a picture or a video? Maybe it's a picture of, of that whole thing of the, one of the brothers yeah. in the airplane. And you could tell it's at I, Cleveland. I actually, I have a picture of it. You can yeah. tell it's at Cleveland. It's just I came, rough I came as, ready with the picture. Rough as a <laughs> cob out there. So they're yeah. you know, sitting there running and it's, it's such a cool, cool thing to see a snapshot from back then of, yeah, yeah, he hops out, bail lops in, jumps in, and <laughs> away they go, and oh, they set a yeah. record, you know. Yeah. But the, and then, well, and, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, with you mentioned the R&D for Pratt & Whitney, and obviously almost anybody listening to this podcast is going to know exactly what's going on. You know, Pratt & Whitney is massive, and they've they actually, just during World War II, so about... 10 or so years after that. So during World War II, they actually produced 50% of the power for the Allied forces throughout World War II. Right. So, you know, a lot of this R&D and stuff that they learned was, I believe, was used to produce during a really important and kind of crucial history (laughs) turning point. And, you know, and Pratt and Whitney themselves, I mean, going back a little bit further, is they they weren't an engine company. They were a tool and die company. Mm -hmm. And... There were a couple of engineers that were working at Wright that came up with an idea for a new and better engine, and then mm-hmm. the big bosses at Wright didn't didn't like it, and so they, they uh, went looking whips. for some, yeah, and so they <laughs> went looking um, looking for a place to to do it, and they went to Pratt and yeah. for for help to make some of the parts, and um, you know they ended up naming naming the air, the engine instead of whatever their names were. I can't recall right now, but. Um, you know, uh, for the Pratt Whitney Company, and so they became famous for building engines, and they build jet engines that we, you know, on passenger jets and biz jets and everything today. They still do. 
So it's one of those things that if one of the sayings on the sign we have in the office, if God had intended airplane engines to be flat, he had Pratt Whitney build them that way. And, you know, <laughs> so, and so the engines were round back then and they're still round today on the jets. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, you know, just so you dozens of listeners out there. Uh, <laughs> tens and tens of views. We, yeah. Yeah. If that little sign must, or it's not even a sign. It's just a little piece of paper. It's right. a little flyer. Yeah. And it will be, it looks like it's just been a little bit beat up. It's one of those shop things. And it looks like it, it was from the printed 20s. and made at the time. <laughs> well, no, I was like, I was going to compare it to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, like yeah. This flyer, it's on parchment. Is yeah. yeah, it has been moved everywhere, and it's just kind of a staple of the little yeah. Kimball yeah. JKE Works home office. So if that is, if that flyer is not there at any given time, it something some happened. of that's happening. Yeah. But, well, you know, and then yeah. you know, we go back to Cleveland. These guys really dominated that year. Um, Jimmy Doolittle was flying the Laird Super Solution and had, had problems. And so he was falling back and, and he was the guy to beat, you know, he was, he was the hero, right? So he was the guy that, that was the fastest guy the year before. And, um, you know, he, he was, you know, just having engine problems or whatever it was, but I mean, we, he had, you know, he had the high tech stuff. He had the good yeah, gas. He was, yeah. The good yeah. Prop. He was, he, yeah, he was a guy with shell and he had, he had the hottest gas and, and, um, you know, in 32, you know, he, the year later, he had, you know, the best propellers that were out there. And it was just as as things were developing, it just came to be. But the Granvilles and Bob Hall, you know, the Granville group, won five, entered, entered the Z in five races five. in 1931 and won all five. So mm-hmm. Bob Hall flew the airplane in, in uh, what was it, the, the Goodrich race or the Goodrich tire race, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. 180-some miles an hour average. and. There's some pictures of that. <clears throat> you can see Bob Hall standing up in the cockpit, either before or after the race. I don't know, and you can notice a real major difference in the airplane if you find that particular photo and you have it, Kate. As mm-hmm. the landing gear legs are no longer an open V, there's fabric, silver fabric, where they covered over the gear leg openings, thinking that maybe the air coming around the first leg and then hitting the second leg was draggy, so they covered it over. And it actually went slower, and it was. And the reason it went slower is because it really screwed up the the yaw stability of the airplane. It made it very hard to control, because now instead of just being spindly little legs up there, you had these giant, almost fin-like surfaces forward of the of where you need you want to have that kind of surface, and it made it harder to control. So mm-hmm. after that race, that crap got t- torn back off, and then there's pictures <laughs> where you can see. You know, when, when Bales actually ran the big races, yeah. that you can see where the, the dope was all peeled off and it's all nasty on the gear leg where it, it kind of messed up the paint job. So, you know, they tried, they were still experimenting every every race. You're trying yeah. that little bit more, a little bit more. And, little speed well, tape and I here believe, and there. Yeah. I believe it was in uh, Bob Hall's, like, either contractor agreement or whatever they had that for, with designing this, he would also share you know flight time in the races with yeah. little bales so yeah, that was like part of the agreement like i'm gonna make this super awesome airplane but you're gonna let me fly it you know? yeah <laughs> and you know and he he was um i think the day he test he test flew the z you know in springfield and i think it was on his 26th birthday he was 26 years old and that's something really to kind of go back to on this whole era 
to keep in mind is that we think of these guys as, as these these senior, very knowledgeable, you know, decades of experience kind of a thing. But all these guys, even, you know, when we keep referring to the Vega, you know, the, the names that were at Lockheed, like, you know, Northrop and, and Jerry Volte and the Lockheed brothers and Palmer, these guys were all in their early 20s. And so Bob Hall and these guys were all rare, very, very young. And um, I think he had 281 hours in his logbook, you know, when he mm-hmm. test flew the Z. He, he, when he climbed in the world's fastest airplane in 1931. It'd be like just how many incredible. hours do you have, Callan? About at, at about four eighty, four ninety. Yeah. So okay. It's, well, there we go. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's amazing to, to when I'm when I was at two fifty dead, and I talked about at this, and it's like learning always flying at two hundred fifty hours. You've flown a cub, and that's all you've flown. And then the next time you fly, you're in the fastest bonanza out there, and it's <laughs> it is. The airplane is miles in front of you. You know, it's it's just amazing how it just shows you how gifted Bob Hall was as a pilot, even in the beginning, because yeah. it just it wasn't in front of him. If it was, he would have died. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing is, is he did have the Model Y, which was one of yeah. the designs, and he was flying it as fast as he could. He was basically yeah. using it as a simulator and mm. flying it landing faster you know he had a he had his in all the calculations and numbers he kind of thought how the z was going to work so they went ahead and did you know he did all the training that he could flying that as much as he could um and then you know it went fine they um they took off at the springfield airport and i think they went over to the bulls airport after that and then um uh, after a few test flights and everything else and it was ready to go it's time to go gotta go and i think he had to Go um, go to Curtis Reed and get the prop retwisted again. I think that was in New York, maybe. Flew up there and and then from there over to Cleveland. So, so that's the other to, thing you got to keep in mind. Is, you know, in the day there wasn't any of this. Put it on a trailer and let's truck it over to the races and yeah. put it all together. You know, you get in it and you go. And yeah, you know, it's time. And you know, there's no GPS navigation. You don't have. You know, hell, they didn't hardly have any charts and maps. It was it was town to town to town, figuring your way out there, and it was. Um, it was it was pretty you know pretty brutal in the in, in flying back then. Yeah. See earlier you talked about the, at the races they were constantly adjusting things on the airplane yeah. on the engine. So earlier we were looking at pictures that we got earlier of the Z. Yeah. And you mentioned one of the times uh, looking at the picture of the airplanes sitting on saw horses and I think Bob Hall's holding up the wing. Right. Uh, or somebody's holding the wing up, and you mentioned this the 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 scat tubing or something that goes that's leading from <laughs> the from the lower wing lower the part of the wing into the cockpit and you you said that on that trip to Curtis Reed, he almost fell out of the cockpit afterwards because he was inhaling so much exhaust fumes because it's right Ooh. in front of the exhaust, yeah. and then they moved it <laughs> yeah yeah he he was pretty much overcome by CO by the time he got there. And, um, you know, the carbon monoxide just was getting to him. And it's that particular photograph is really interesting because it's it's one that shows so many things about how the airplane was built. And, and um, we can talk about that when we get to talking about the replica and why we did some things the way we did. But that photograph was pretty influential on that. 
and we did not put the fresh air vent down Aww, in line there. with the exhaust stacks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Come but, on. Yeah. It's uh, right in the center of the instrument panel is a little grill, and that's where the, the pilot fresh air was coming in. But it just happened to be um, in the in the downstream of the exhaust because it had nine individual exhaust stacks. So you had stinky airplane motor stuff coming out all the way around the cowling, not just at one location. And and you but, think about where they put it. You know, we've done stuff with the boat and you with boat stuff, and you have a hole in the in the bottom of the boat. 15 feet in front of something else. And you know, that's never going to get there. It's fine. It's far enough behind it. Well, it's amazing what fluids will do or air. It's It just finds its way you know, around things and it changes the direction. And all of a sudden, you've got a two-inch hose right to your face of exhaust. An inch yeah. further over, it probably would have been fine. You know, it's just, right. but, right. you know, it's just a stick it here and it'll be fine. Well, and it's it's like anything else. I mean, we know we know there's better ways of doing things because yeah. there are problems. They, and, and they did it first. Just, we, <laughs> yeah, if we if we just look at airplanes in particular and one particular system, just like brakes and how the pilot actuates the brakes, and you know, there's airplanes today. Most uh, most every airplane out there has tow brakes, and so you you know you're taxiing around and you want to you know hold the left brake a little bit, you push your left toes forward and that's just how it works. But then, you know, going back before that, um, we have a lot of airplanes had heel brakes. So the brakes were on the, you push, dig in your heels to do it. Um, there was some of the Wacos of that period had what they call a brake over throttle and it was cable actuated brakes and the, um, the cables laced through the pedals and then went all the way over to the throttle handle and you push the throttle forward and back to, to operate the engine, but you pulled the, the throttle towards your lap, the throttle handle down towards your lap to increase the braking. And then you stepped on whichever pedal went for that. The Z was akin to what they what the Granvilles had, had in sleds, snow sleds that they were running around and they they basically um had the the cables for the brakes came up, laced through the pedals and then hooked at the control stick. And so you pulled pulled the stick all the way back and that took out most of the slack out of the cables and gave you a little bit of brake. But then if you needed left brake, you pushed on that pedal and it tightened that brake a little bit more or the right pedal and tightened that brake a little bit more. The airplane also had a tail skid and was really heavy on the tail. So it made the, the tail skid dug in real hard and would help keep the airplane going straight. So there, it's, it's interesting. You know, some of those systems that then later, you know, they, they did, um, yeah, better ways to do it. You know, we all learned better ways. And so that was okay. You know, having a real heavy tail airplanes and tail skids and brakes that were marginal, but then as airports improved and airplanes got yeah. faster, you needed to have better systems. Yeah. Well, you're on, you're on dirt or grass, you know, so everyone that flies an airplane on grass knows it's, it's much easier to handle an old airplane on grass than this pavement because it's yeah. what it was designed for. Yeah. Yeah. So for the pretty... record, I do not know that. I did not know that. Oh yeah. So yeah. Most yeah. Mo- if I am not most people. <laughs> well, most pilots that fly old airplanes are going to know, you know that, like a steerman, it fly it lands and takes off much better on grass than it does pavement because it was designed to be on grass. It can land on pavement. Yeah, no problem. But 
you're working twice as hard to land and take off than you are on, on grass. Yeah. So, you know, with the Z, you know, we talked about this particular airplane, you know, is really the subject of what we're talking about today and next week. Um, pretty amazing airplane for this group of guys who are in the Great Depression, motivated by, you know, hunger and wanting to take care of their families. Crank this thing out in, you know, five and a half, six weeks. Um, make their way to the races. Have this blazing success of entering five races and winning five races. Came back with, I think, uh, the total money that they they won was, collectively, was like 18 grand. So, you know, again, we're talking about that $42 a week for a typical, you know, Ford worker. Um, and so that's that's huge. So they came back and had some money and were able to pay all their their investors dividends and everybody made money and it's like this is working and it's uh, you know it was a very very successful uh time period for them and then um you know the uh they decided to Lowell Bales decided you know he wanted to go for you know the all out land plane speed record and the airplane just wasn't quite fast enough for that you know, people, to give to give a little bit of a perspective on size, this airplane is 535 horsepower, almost a thousand cubic inches of an engine. It's 15 feet long from the propeller to the tip of the rudder. So, my wife's Ford Expedition's a little bit longer, I think. You know, than this airplane is, and it had really short wings, 23 foot wingspan, and it's um. You know, it was it was again a tiny, tiny airplane with the biggest engine that they could put on it, and that's why it was fast. But still, it wasn't fast enough to have the margin of of um, increased speed to set the land plane speed record. So that's when they decided to put the 750 horse engine on it, the Pratt and Whitney 1340, the Wasp, and uh, go for the land plane speed record and. There's different stories about what happened at that point. You know, Bob Hall was not in favor of that. Um, and he decided, you know, he left the company. And then Lowell Bales um, was a prime investor and he was going to be the pilot. And he kind of pushed for the engine to go on there. When Jeff and I went to the um, Springfield uh, Museum of Science, uh, whenever that was in the mid nineties and you know, there's a whole bunch of the GB stuff and plaques and trophies and everything. And there's a business card in there and it has Lowell Bales as the, uh, chief engineer, you know, basically he assumed the position to be able to say, you know, boys put the motor on. Yeah. So they put the motor on and then, um, uh, you know, and my understanding is it was more horsepower. It was going to be more speed than the airplane was really designed for. And, um, you know, uh, whether that caused the issue or something else did, but then, you know, the airplane was lost. And uh, it was that December 5th, I think, you know, when they, December 5th, 31, when it crashed in, in Detroit, yeah, Wayne County so. Airport. Yeah. And, um, you know, they had made, the, made an attempt on the speed record a few days before, day before. There's different stories. Um, you know, timing equipment failed or, or whatever it was, or maybe just didn't get the mark that he needed. Um just Katie, so you understand when you're setting a new record like that, it has to be by a certain percentage greater than the previous record. 
And it can't just be like, oh, I beat it by a tenth of a mile an hour. You can't yeah. do that. It's got to, it's got to be, I forget what no, the... No, that what, makes sense. What the, there's a, but there's a percentage it has to be over. And they didn't you, quite you get to, that mark. You have to beat it, not just, yeah, you beat it. You yeah. got to for sure have beaten it. Right. Yeah. And so then, then um, so they made another another session, and the, the second session of racing was not as nice a day. It was a pretty rough day, pretty blistery and blustery. And it was cold. You see the the video from the film from that day, and the guys are in overcoats and you know hats, and it's just blowing like heck. Whereas the pictures from the first attempt day, they're in you know, no coats on at all. They just got sweaters on, but you know, yeah, you know, cable knit sweaters and looking all swave and boner. But they, you know, they're not <laughs> they're not um, cable not knit bundled is so up hot right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they're uh, they're not all um, bundled up like they were yeah. on the actual on the accident one. day, and yeah. then um, you know he's coming in on the speed run, and you see the airplane pitch down, pitch up, wingtip breaks, and it rolls and crashes, and um, you know that was the first run on that particular on that particular session. So, so it, I think um, for me, like as a kid growing up, you know, mom had the two VHS set of the Titanic. And Callan and I watched it, and it's, of course, you know, great movie, but it's kind of that tragic story of, look at this amazing thing, you know, kind of their fault for calling it unsinkable, but look at this amazing thing, yeah. look at this, look at this, it's very, you know, if it hadn't, okay, I, if it hadn't had that tragic ending, I don't think it would have been as memorable. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think for for me, and I don't know how it is for a lot of people, but for me, the reason that I've always found the Z so cool is because it had that little bit of a tragic ending where you're like, dang, like, and I really wish that, you know, it's kind of that what if thing that kind of keeps yeah. my attention on this. Yeah, did it thing. did it reach its potential or not? You know, and it it certainly was you know excelled beyond. Uh, you know other airplanes of the day, but did it actually do everything it could before it had the problem? Yeah. And you know, there's a there's many schools of thought as to what happened that day. Um, the the official line at the time was, "Oh, the gas cap came off, which is in, you know in front of the cockpit, came through, hit the windshield, hit him, made him you know jerk the stick, and that's what caused the the wing to break." Um, and then when you read about everything, you know, there's, uh, some reporters and investigators and timing equipment, you know, the NAA or, um, FAI guys, NAA guys there, and they see goggles and not too far away the gas cap. And so somebody says, oh yeah, maybe the gas cap came off and, you know, hit him in the face and that's what caused this problem. And, and so they're like, it, w- it would land perfectly on the ground like that. Well, no, but yeah, exactly. And they're, they're yeah. so, so you just think about if you're, if you're the people that built this airplane and this happened and somebody goes, Hey, maybe the gas cap came off of him in the face. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, it. Yeah. that's what yeah. did it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, it was the gas cap. Yeah. That's what, that's airplane. it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about the gas cap, the airplane's going 300 miles an hour. Okay. The gas cap is literally about two and a half feet in front of the windshield. So it would have to slow down a lot Instantly. in two and a half feet <laughs> to be in the way for the windshield to, to go pass through it, basically. Yeah. So, and the chances of it going straight back 
when you've got a rounded airplane like that. And if you look at all the exhaust streaks on the side of the airplane, none of them go straight back. They all bend away from the, from the cockpit and go down the side of the airplane. So I don't buy the fact that the gas cap hit the windshield. What I think happened is the other story that we've heard where in the previous days before they did the test, uh, the, the attempts, um, Lowell Bales was doing a test top on the airplane, ground looped it, smacked the right wing on the ground or a fence. One story says a fence and damaged the wing. And so they did repairs to the wing and then, you know, did a, you know, before going on this adventure of the, of the speed record and it happened to fail. Um, I think what's happened is he's diving in. It's a really bumpy, nasty, super windy day. He hits a little patch of sink. The airplane, you know, starts to dive towards the ground. He's going 300 plus miles an hour and he's 150 feet, you know, 200 feet off the ground and the nose drops all of a sudden and you panic pull and you get, you know, spike Mm -hmm. some G on it. And then that damaged wing breaks. And when you watch the, the film footage of that and you do it frame by frame, you can see that it breaks from the outboard aileron hinge coming forward and inboard just a little bit to where the pitot tube is. And that's a you know a fair portion of the wing, a lot. That's why it would make, make the thing roll. Yeah. But <clears throat> the wing itself did not leave because all the wire, landing wires, the other wing is still in position. The landing gear is still in position, and it's a closed loop of wires all the way around. So if the right wing left the airframe, the landing gear would fold over sideways. The other wing would fold up because there's nothing to hold it. So it's it's um, clear that just the tip broke. And Ha-ha, then, just the tip. Sorry, yeah, I couldn't yeah, help myself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. go ahead. So, <laughs> and then, and then the, um, there's a, in the Detroit newspaper from that day, there's an account of one of the um, the course workers for the speed run that's on the entrance end of the course, and the pitot tube fell off the wing as the airplane passed over head of him and landed on the ground. He sees it hit the ground and looks up and sees the airplane spinning in. So the pitot tube came off, and you know it's attached to the to the wing right there where um, where it failed and. There's a there's some clues there. We talked about the photograph of Bob Hall with the the thing there and the the vent hose going to the bottom, and he's standing there holding the wing. And when you look at him holding a co- fabric covered wing, it's the right wing with the pitot tube. He's holding it by the pitot tube, and at the butt end of the wing, the pitot lines come out behind the wing spar, the forward wing spar, which is a major beam in the wing that's full thickness. So the only way that the pitot lines are behind the spar is if the pitot tube was mounted the same way they did it on the Model Y and the, and the other Sportsters, the A through F. And that was they drill a big-ass hole through the spar, <laughs> and the pitot tube poked through that and was clamped in place, and the pitot lines came out on the backside of the spar. So you've got a, you've got a piece of wood, the wooden spar that is three inches tall, and you've got an inch and a quarter hole b- blown through it, so it doesn't leave a whole lot of wood above and below. And it would be an easy point for it to crack and fail. And that's really the, where it broke. That's why the pitot tube. Yeah, that's why the yeah. pitot tube fell out of it. It's because it broke right there. It let go of it. Yeah. Um, now, whether whether that was caused by flutter, you know, the ailerons fluttering or the wingtip fluttering, could be. Um, 
or if it, or if the the stories of him having ground looped it damaged the wing are true, but for whatever reason, that portion of the wing broke off, and then it spirals in, and that's the you know the, the tragic you know footage that yeah. everybody sees yeah. the newsreel kind of footage. Cue the twenties newsreel sound. Right. Dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. Sound like a trumpet. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking news today. Why am I working on the speed run? You know, and so. Yeah, so it's, but I, I watched a lot of that, that footage, I would say a thousand times, frame by frame. And then there's footage that the newsreel guys went over to the wreckage and you, you know, there's yeah. a, a white sheet over Bale's body. The engine is oh. way over here. You know, went rolling like a, you know, cartwheeling the way the engine did after it hit the ground. But, you know, the airframe is there and, and it's upside down. Um, but I can see. I, I was able to see so many things that were inside, like the control systems and and uh, how the tail was mounted and a whole bunch of things. And so even from that tragedy and you know, the, the really grainy footage that's there, we were able to learn a little bit more about the airplane and how it was put together. Uh, and that was that was pretty, pretty interesting to be able to go through and study that. I think what this what intrigued a lot of people about the Z is is the crash. I mean, people like yeah. tragedy. I mean, if people... People do. people go to NASCAR races to see crashes, not to... Oh, I mean, yeah. why else would you go there? You know, yeah. you don't see the Jeez. person win, you know? Right. You got to see the crash. Um, yeah. But you know, there's... What's interesting with you know, the Hold Z... Hold on, I just want to step in here. Uh, we do not uh, want people to crash and get hurt at NASCAR races. That was a joke. Right. So please, yeah, well, please don't fight us or send anything mean in the mail. Okay, yeah. sorry, Callan, go ahead. But you got the Z, and you have the crash. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have the crash, and you have all of the. It was this. I think it was the all the you know the people that think they have figured it out over the years. Yeah, and the it, rumors and the, the rumors. And, and I talked to so and so, and he was there, and he was clipping the lawn across the street, or you know all this stuff, and it. It makes My it dad through GBs, you know. Yeah. You even get those stories. Yeah, yeah, where this, you know, it's but it makes it to where there's this thing. I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna find the problem. But there's no. It, it, the only way to find out what actually happened is to find some machine and go back to be there and be in the airplane with bales, and that's never gonna happen. Well, You're never Callan, gonna you know. And I- we created our own time machine. Yeah. I don't know if anybody knows that, but we created our own time machine at the hangar in like 2002. Um, still working that, on it. Yeah, how'd that go for you? No, I mean, yeah. we had a couple encouraging uh, test runs. I think the cardboard might have been a little too thin, but, you know, like, yeah. you know, a cardboard box and some markers can do a lot. <laughs> so when we get on it, we'll let you guys know. <laughs> right. But it, it's, it's, um, it was a start of, some bad luck for those guys, you know, yeah. and then, you know, the, the next year they, they did quite well. They had the R1, R2 and, you know, those, the Bob Hall had left the company and went on and formed his own company, the uh, Springfield aircraft, uh, designed a couple of airplanes and, um, the Hall Bulldog and the Cicada. But, um, they hired in Pete Miller, you know, as the, as the engineer. And so that's really why the Granville airplanes, the R series, you know, we talked about the P uh, being the prototype biplane, and then the Q was an airplane called the Ascender, which the the brothers pr- pronounced it Ascender because it was a canard airplane. It was 
You know, those of you who don't oh, know what a con- with the tail. In yeah, the, front. the tail's in yeah, the front. Yeah, so that thing was, looks weird. Yeah, so it's a canard airplane. That was the Model Q. And so then R is the next available letter. So they use R, not for race. It was just in sequence of the alphabet. Next one. The next thing. So R1 and R2, basically the same airframe from the firewall aft, except the R2 had a, an additional uh, fuel capacity. The R2 had a 985 on it. Uh, 535 horsepower, like the the original Z engine, same type, and then the the R1 had the 1340 on it, and so, so the the R1 was intended to go around the pylons at Cleveland, and the the R1 was intended for the Bendix cross country race. So why not? I've always thought of this. It's probably a dumb question, but why not just build another Z? Well, I think there. It was a new engineer, new ideas. Um, they had, they learned from the Z, and then um, Pete Miller had been really studying the, the the streamlined shape, you know, that perfect teardrop, that water droplet, mm-hmm. the perfect airfoil shape, and so the R series is really one that really brought a lot of attention because as radical as the Z was, it was pretty normal looking compared to. Yeah. The yeah, R one and R two, the sewer yeah. pipe with wings. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. flying flying beer keg. You know, it really, yeah. it looks, it looks, it is an airfoil in all respects. You know, coming back, yeah. so it was the ultimate streamline, the lowest drag that they could do. So they learned from the Z, and and that you know it wasn't quite as fast as as they thought they could go, and so they they did some other approaches to how to get it done, and the you know the the. The firewall on the Z is 46 inches in diameter, and the firewall on the R1 and R2 is 61 inches in diameter. And oh. so you have the same size motor up front, but then it gets real plump, and then the rudder is, what, a foot wide you know, at the hinge line, and it's a yeah. big tapered coming back. It's, Which it's, is just behind the pilot's head. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty radical. So yeah. you know, it was, it was definitely the next evolution, mm-hmm. and they did well in 32. They really did. Yeah. Um, and then coming after that, they had some, you know, some accidents with those airplanes. And then, you know, Granny was killed in a crash uh, delivering a, one of the Sportster airplanes to a customer. I think uh, the story was a, a truck pulled out on the runway and he pulled up to go around to miss him and kind of stall. a stall spin. Yeah. And then uh, one of the other brothers was killed in another another instance. And so you know, when you talked about the company going bankrupt in 34... Yes, the company went bankrupt because, you know, they moved on because it they lost, you know, the, the main characters are now, you know, Hall's moved on to his thing and everybody's kind of gone off. But the, these brothers went out into, into aviation. Some went to work for Pratt Whitney. Some went to work for Hamilton Standard Propeller. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they continued to be major contributors to aviation, uh, the, you know, aviation the production of these engines and propellers, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, that went on into War II. To uh, to to really help the allies do great things, and it's um it's pretty cool that you have a family that was able to do that kind of stuff. The you know, the, the Granville family, and then Bob Hall, as he went on in his aviation career, he you know, worked at Stenson and some other places, and and then he ended up at Grumman, and then uh, when Bob Hall uh, retired from Grumman, I, I believe he was vice president of engineering at Grumman, so. You know, a lot of the Grumman airplanes that were, um, uh, we know the Hellcat, Wildcat, Bearcat, 
all these cat airplanes that they had were um, cat. Yeah, had had root all the way to the F fourteen Tomcat. Uh, Bob Hall had direct involvement in a lot of this stuff, and he, uh, um, if you look at those airplanes and then you look at the Z, and you can see, you know, unlike a Wildcat, you see it's a big engine, big pudgy fuselage, little wings, and yeah. you know, there's there's uh, the lineage from the Z, and it was because it's often the minded same guy. I think when Bob Hall. Um, Quit flying. He had less than thirteen hundred hours total time um, in his logbook, and I, I recall from an interview where he told the the guy uh, that he uh, like a couple hundred of those hours didn't count because just you know flying the boss around in his in his airplane. But everything else was you know work hours. Everything that he did, you know, he he test flew most of the airplanes that he designed. He was a first test flight guy, um, and I remember. Um, go back 20 years ago and we we had a, a, a friend who used to come here and visit us he's passed away now with Corky Meyer and he actually worked under Bob Hall at, at Grumman and he was telling he would tell Bob Hall stories because you know we built the Z and everything and and he talked about the F8F Bearcat and Bob Hall did the first test flight on it and um, Corky was like man I, I, let, let me fly it and he said, no, 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 it's not ready yet. We're going to do some changes. And they made the tail a little bit bigger. And he, Paul went out, flew it again. And he said, uh, no, no, you can't fly it yet. We're going to make another change. Made two or three changes like that, a couple of sessions. And then he finally said, okay, you know, it's Corky. You, you can go ahead and fly it. It's um, you know, it's good enough for you to go fly now. And so he went out and flew it. And he said it was the most unstable airplane in pitch that he'd ever flown in his life. And he couldn't believe that this was the point where, you know, Hall had said, Hey, yeah, it's okay for you to go try it now. Yeah, and how bad it must have been in the beginning when Bob Hall made it look like it, there was no issues whatsoever. Just so shows you how he was. I, he was a he was a, a very accomplished, very tuned yeah. pilot, as well as a as a fantastic engineer. It just shows and you how so, well, I, like you said, a gifted pilot he was then. Right. And when he flew the Z, right, it's the perfect person to do that. Right. It was a it was a perfect recipe. He's just a guy yeah. that had the ability to do all of that, and that's pretty yeah. rare. Well, I think um, I think we're at a pretty good stopping point for part two. Yeah, um, yeah if we, if we keep going, replica. we're going to start talking about the replica. Yeah. <laughs> we need to hold off, yeah. Like, we're not going for four-hour episodes here. We can't do it. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so next week we are going to be discussing the... Kevin Kimball and Jeff Eicher replica of the GBZ that was built in the 90s, I believe, right, Dad? Yeah, we finished it in 96. Yeah. yeah. So we've got some really fun uh, old newsreel footage of Dad and Jeff Eicher in all of their 90s glory talking about it, so you guys will be able to hear a little bit of that. Um it's news freaky. Reel. It's not newsreel footage. It's for Jeez. whatever. I don't yeah. know. But and buyers took is, all that video. Yeah. What's crazy is I hope you guys like will share the link to actually view the YouTube videos. This obviously Dad has the same exact voice, but he looks like he's like nineteen, and it it's is freaky. the weirdest thing. <laughs> I saw it like when when was that? Like a month or so ago. I saw it and I texted it to the whole family group text, and I was like, "You guys have to see this dude talking with Dad's voice. It's just completely it's weird." 
and yeah. you know like so i was like, what 32 i was 32 yeah i was one callan was four five, five. <laughs> so yeah it is you know we don't remember anything from back then so when i randomly stumbled across the video i was like oh my gosh it's crazy so um and we will have jeff eicher on the show with us next week so that's going to be really really cool um it's just going to be a lot of you know back and forth between uh dad and jeff and callan just remembering stuff talking about stuff and that one's going to be well (laughs) callan's not really going to remember a lot but callan is a is a bit of a history buff so he'll be able to chime in i don't know how much i'm going to be able to chime in because while callan was five i was less than a year old so Mm -hmm. um i mean not long after that i mean that was in june of 96 that we test flew the airplane and then in you know march or april when sun and fun came around that's where their you know delmar was there and Linda yeah. and their and they basically stole you from Robin and I and kept you most of the time. We have all those pictures with them pushing you around the stroller and sitting on the on the R two and everything yeah, else. Yeah, I think I've still got the picture of him not even a year in old. front of the R two. Yeah. yeah <laughs> just yeah. like there it is. But uh yeah, so that's all coming up next week. We're hopefully hoping to get it published either Thursday or Friday of next week. And um, if you guys haven't yet and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to it so you get a little notification when the next one comes out. And also, if you did like it, please leave that five-star review. You will be, we'll leave a link to our podcast page on the website so you can shoot over there and view all the photos that we talked about. We're not going to leave you guys hanging on that. And yeah, so we're going to crank out this next one. It's going to be awesome. And then we are going to finish this series with a part three as well. And that one's a little bit of a surprise for you guys. So uh, we're going to keep that a little bit hidden. But stay tuned for next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. And have a great night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Oh, well, actually, I guess it could be literally any type of day. Time yeah. of day you're listening uh, to Goodbye. This goodbye. Have, goodbye a, everybody. have a great rest of your life until next week. So long. <laughs> yeah. So long. Farewell. Abhidasane.